Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our 9.30 a.m. service here at Citizens. Um, the one Sunday of the year when our parents, for some reason, are very spirit-filled. They're always sitting in the front row. I don't know why, but um, yeah, God is moving in this season. Um, just want to let you know that, um, so the next couple weeks, as you know, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, uh, both fall on Sundays, and so um, it's going to be pretty much um, business as usual for us. We'll still have both services at 9.30 a.m. and 11.30 a.m., and I think it's just a really, both are really great opportunities because Christmas Day can sometimes be full of so many things, and we're busy with family and things like that. could be such a great opportunity to pause on Christmas Eve to remember uh, what Christmas is all about, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And then the following week on New Year's Eve, as we bring a close to 2023 as a church and look forward to 2024, just what a great uh, opportunity for us to be able to worship together. And so um, again, great services to be able to invite your friends, uh, family, coworkers. Um, so still 9.30 a.m., 11.30 a.m. next week and then the week after, okay? Uh, with that being said, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. If you have a Bible, um, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. Uh, if you like to follow along on a phone, um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, okay, the New International Version. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. This is the reading of God's Word. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we dig into God's word together. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today. We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but um, there's been a trend going around, um, and it's people going on something called a dark retreat, okay? And this is, it's basically an ancient um, spiritual practice, but 
um, you know, as we do uh, here in capitalist America, someone's going to make money off of it. So um, they're bringing it to the mainstream. And basically, these dark retreats are literally where you go away. Usually, it's like sometimes in the middle of the woods somewhere. And you're basically in pitch black for like seven days, you know. And, and there are different increments. You can do it like three days, five days, seven days. Um, the only thing that they give you is a place to go to the bathroom and some maybe readily accessible food or water, but they make sure it's like pitch black. And like Aaron Rodgers, who's a quarterback in the NFL, he started doing it, made it really popular, and people have gone on these dark retreats and they, they've basically reported back that their lives have been changed because there's something about this connecting to this ancient spiritual practice of retreating into the darkness that they realized was kind of like a detox to the system, it, kind of a, a way to detox from a life full of busyness and distraction. And so when they emerge from the darkness, they'll often talk about how like they look at the entire world completely differently. Well, as you know, we are in a season, we are in the season of Advent. And that word Advent comes from a Latin word that means arrival or coming. And the idea is that this is a season in which the church collectively engages with darkness in preparation for Jesus' coming. And we use this time to not only look back at his arrival some 2,000 years ago, but also to look forward in expectation to his second coming where he promises to return and renew all things. And it's a season marked by waiting, waiting for God to show up in our lives and in the world. Now, for those of you who don't know, Advent actually marks the beginning of the church's liturgical calendar, right? And, you know, many of you may not know this, but a lot of churches, sometimes they will preach according to the church's liturgical calendar. And it's really interesting to me that the church begins its year as the rest of the year, uh, as, a, as the rest of the world is ending its year, right? And it's counterintuitive because for most of us, December is a time when we're winding things down, when we're beaten up, we're exhausted from the year that's gone by, we're full of regret, we're thinking about all the things and all the resolutions we made on January 1st of that year and failed to do, right? This is a season that often accentuates our loneliness, it accentuates our anxiety that puts a huge spotlight on the relationships in our lives that are broken. And it doesn't help that especially here in America, Christmas time is a time full of festivities and pageantry and extravagance, right? Where all the messaging around you makes you feel like you're supposed to be happy and celebrating. And so there's this huge muscle confusion. There's this disconnect, this gap that you feel like, when, when you're going home after your, I don't know, your fourth white elephant gift exchange, when you've gone to your like uh, company parties and your parties with friends and you're going home and it's like weird because you're supposed to be happy and joyful and yet you go home and you feel this nagging, lingering sense of emptiness. In a time that's all about bright lights and colors, if we're honest, for a lot of us, this season is full of darkness. And yet, this is where the church calendar begins. Not in January, like the rest of the world, but in Advent. In the exhaustion, in the frustration, in the loneliness, in the anxiety, in the doubt, as if to remind us that God's story always begins in the dark. 
That darkness is never the final word. It's never the conclusion. It's always the introduction. It's always the preparation for what God is getting ready to do. When you open up your Bible, the first words that you read are, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You see, God's story has always begun in the dark. When there was only emptiness and only void, God was there, hovering over the darkness, hovering over the waters, getting ready to bring light into the world. And so it makes sense that the Christmas story also begins in the dark, both literally and figuratively. Right, the first line of the passage we read today says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And that's an easy detail to miss, that when God breaks into the world, he arrives at night. And in those times, there were no Christmas lights. This was a time before electricity, so this was at night. He doesn't choose a time in the day when everyone is up and about and everyone can see him. He chooses to come at night to the few who are awake to receive him. And I was thinking about this, right? We often use the phrase, the things that keep us up at night, to describe the things that give us our greatest fears, the things that are a source of our anxiety and our uncertainty. And it's so true that it's usually at night that we experience our highest levels of anxiety and loneliness. It's usually at night when we feel the crushing weight of our existential dread. I would bet money that most fights between spouses happen at night. Most crimes are committed at night. It's usually at night when most bad decisions are made. That's why they turn off all the lights at the club, right? Because they know, like, there's something about the darkness that brings out the worst of you. And yet time and time again, darkness is precisely where God meets his people. Against the blackest of night, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, breaks into our reality to bring hope and healing. This is the profound message of Christmas. And you realize there's a reason why Jesus always says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, because the light of the world is brightest to those who are acquainted with darkness. They say the darker the night, the more brilliant the light. One thing we have to understand whenever we come to the Christmas story is that for us, you know, when we read the Bibles, it's just one turn of the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? But for the people of God, that one turn of the page represents so much and darkness. It represents 400 years of prophetic silence, meaning after God speaks to his people through the prophet Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, there is a 400-year gap before the birth of Christ where God is pretty much silent. Not one prophetic word. If you want to talk about darkness, this is a people who are well acquainted with darkness. This is a people who carry in their history 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 
This is a people whose ancestors spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness in search of the promised land. This is a people whose ancestors spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity, displaced from their homes. This is a people who've experienced so much oppression and violence. And now for 400 years, there has not been one prophetic word. You have to think there are generations of mothers and fathers who've sat down with their kids wondering, I wonder if this is the generation that's going to see the promised Messiah, the one the prophet Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 9 when he describes a day in Israel's future when the darkness will be lifted. The prophet says the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. The promise was given 700 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene. So you have an entire nation collectively groaning, clinging desperately to these words. When? When, God? And how are you going to show up in the midst of our darkness? And perhaps this is the question many of you sitting here are asking today. When, God? When and how are you going to show up in my life? When and how are you going to show up in our world? In many ways, we can relate to the people who waited for Jesus' first coming. People who walked in darkness, in a world ravaged by war and violence and injustice. And not much has changed, except we just have weapons that are bigger and more deadly and more advanced. In the Middle East at this very moment, there is wailing. There is the wailing of parents burying their children, families whose lives have been completely torn apart by war. All around us, there is ongoing corruption and ongoing marginalization of people created in the image of God, ongoing poverty, famine, and hate. And here in the West, we're a lot better at hiding from that. Right? We're a lot better at staying distracted, convincing ourselves that this darkness doesn't exist. Yesterday I was at the mall with my kids and everyone's getting their last minute Christmas shopping in and I was sitting there in the food court. My kids are like at this um, juice place that gives out free samples, you know, because they're on the pastor salary, you know, can't afford that stuff, you know. But, um, you know, they're, they're, they're out there being like, let me take some of the watermelon, the pineapple, you know. And it's, there was a scene, and I had like a momentary out-of-body experience. Like, like, this isn't reality. And I think if you and I were to be really honest with ourselves, we know that there is so much darkness everywhere. For some of us, that darkness is something we brought on ourselves because of the things that we've done to other people. For some of us, the darkness is, is the result of things that have been done to us. For some of us, the darkness is just the product of living in a world marred by death and disease. You know, I can't tell you how many people in our community in this season that's supposed to be about love and family have lost loved ones for whom Christmas, Christmas time is always going to be connected to their grief. There are so many in this room who've experienced so much betrayal this year, so much abuse this year by people we trusted, people we thought were our friends. And so it's an understatement to say that darkness is all around us, but Advent is an invitation to sit in that darkness, knowing that it's the darkness where God meets us, and it's the darkness where God often does his best work. The writer Wendell Berry, he once wrote about the Christmas story 
And he said this really simple quote. He said, it gets darker and darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. I love that quote so much. It gets darker and darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. And, I, and the reason why I love that quote so much is that it reminds us that the darker it is, the closer we are to God's coming. For the shepherds on that fateful Christmas night, which we just read about, they could not have expected what was going to happen. They could not have expected to look up on this ordinary night and see this bright light, the radiance of God's glory, fill the entire field. And we read that they were terrified. And that's very interesting, right? Because you would think the light of the world has just entered our reality, and you would think these shepherds would be full of joy. This is what the Jewish people have waited for for so long. For 400 years, they've waited for this moment, and yet we read that their response was not of celebration, but of fear, that they were terrified. In fact, every time in Scripture a human encounters the divine, the first response, strangely, is always terror. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah beholds the splendor and majesty of God, we read that the first thing he says is, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? And we're talking about a prophet. We're talking about one of the spiritual elites. And yet when he encounters the bigness and the holiness of God, he says, I don't deserve to be alive. He covers his face and he says, woe is me. You see, one thing that light does is that it exposes us. It helps us to see ourselves more clearly. And this is why often when you say yes to Christ, when you come into relationship with Jesus, a lot of times it gets a lot worse before it gets better. Sometimes your problems don't go away. Sometimes they get bigger because you start to see things about yourself that you never saw before. You become more aware of the areas of your life that are broken. You become more aware of the bitterness and unforgiveness you hold in your heart. You know, anyone who's ever played sports, you know, right, that if you're always playing with people worse than you are, you have an inflated sense of how good you are, right? Because there's no one there to expose your weaknesses. There's no one there to expose your deficiencies. So you actually think you're really good. And then you play with someone who's a lot better than you. And all of a sudden you realize, I suck. I'm not that good. I'm not who I thought I was. And so the first part of God coming into our lives, bringing light into darkness, doesn't always feel so good. It can often be terrifying. It can place you in front of people you swore you would never talk to again. It can seat you at a table in the presence of your enemies. It can make you think twice about decisions that used to be no-brainers. It can make you confront habits that have been a part of your life for decades. And the more you draw near to God, it's not often that you feel like, oh, I got this. I got the hang of this. No, often the more you draw near to God, the more helpless you feel. But this is why the second component of God's arrival is so beautiful. We read that immediately the angel of the Lord says to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. In their moment of greatest fear and helplessness, the angel of the Lord says, I have good news. A Savior has been born to you. 
You can't save yourself. You're right. And I think you recognize that now. But the one who can has been born to you this night. This is what it means to live in the reality of Christmas. To see yourself for who you really are. And yet to see the beauty of the one who loves you as you are. And this is why it makes so much sense then that when God arrives, he doesn't send his divine messengers to the king's courts. He doesn't go to the temples. Like DC mentioned today, he doesn't go to the spiritual elites. He sends them to the fields, to the shepherds, to the lowliest, most despised social class. You see, in those times, shepherds were people who, who were seen as people who didn't have any marketable skills. Nobody wanted to grow up and be a shepherd. You became a shepherd if you had no other prospects or options because you were out in the fields all day. It was hard work. You were dirty. You smelled like sheep. It was a horrible job. Shepherds were poor. They were uneducated. They were at grave risk of death at any moment. But then it wasn't just the physical toll. There was a huge emotional toll to being a shepherd as well. But because you needed to be on the fields and you needed to be out all the time, you could not regularly go to the temple. And the temple was the locus of community in that time. So basically, you didn't have any friends. You didn't have any community. It was a lonely existence. And so if you were a shepherd, you didn't expect much to come from your life. And when the whole world has labeled you unworthy, incompetent, untrustworthy, at some point you start to believe it yourself. Right? There's so much research being done right now about the impact that labels have on children. Right? That when you tell your kids, you're so smart, or you're so athletic, or she's the responsible one, how much they end up internalizing that and live into those labels. How much they, the things that people have said about them ultimately become the things that they say to themselves. This is why I tell my kids every night, you're a genius, you're a prodigy, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding, I don't say that, okay? I'm not like that, right? But, so you gotta think for these shepherds, it's not just what people are saying about them, it's what they are saying about themselves. So in the midst of the darkness that was already present in their world, if there was a group of people that was especially acquainted with the darkness, it's the shepherds. And yet, why are these the first people to receive the message of Jesus' arrival? It's because God is trying to communicate something about his kingdom, that it is not for the strong or the powerful, but those who are willing to acknowledge their need. God didn't come to the elites. He came first to those that nobody respected or cared about. He chose the lowly and the disregarded and said, you can be first in line to see Jesus. In a world where only a select few could have access to a king, God gives the rejected and the unwanted the best seats in the house. And guess what? God is still giving that invitation today. He's still calling and revealing himself to those who are willing to humble themselves and make themselves weak. You see, by coming to the shepherds, God was not only hinting at who his kingdom was for, he was also hinting at how his kingdom would be established. Not through power or strength, but through weakness and vulnerability. God comes as a baby in a manger, he lives as a homeless nomad, and he dies 
hanging on a Roman cross. He comes not to take life, but to give his life as a ransom for our sin. But now watch this. One of the reasons these shepherds, right? Like I was reading this story and I'm thinking to myself, okay, they say, let's go to, let's go to Bethlehem and let's check out this baby. And they find baby Jesus with this teenage mom in a manger, right? And this baby is lying in a feeding trough. And the first thought in their mind is like, is this, I don't know if this is the right baby, right? We read that immediately they see the baby, and then the next verse is they're already out sharing with every, spreading the word that this baby is born. How did the shepherds know? Why was there no hesitation? And I realize the reason they go out and immediately begin to spread the word about him is because as lowly as shepherds were on the societal totem pole, one of their jobs as shepherds was to prepare the sheep for Jewish ceremonies like Passover. This was a time in which animal sacrifice was a part of the Jewish system, and these shepherds had to protect these lambs that were going to be sacrificed and to make sure these lambs were free of dirt and blemishes. You know what they did? They wrapped them in swaddling cloths. And so the moment the shepherds see the baby Jesus lying there wrapped in what? Swaddling cloths. Everything clicks. They don't just see a baby. They see a lamb. And everything makes sense because they say, this is the Lamb of God, the one who would be the once and for all ultimate and perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of humanity. You see what's happening here? Not only does God come first to the shepherds, he gives the shepherds a purpose by providing a sign only the shepherds could understand. God turns their profession, which for many would have been a source of shame, into the very vehicle by which they could now bear witness to the Messiah. And that's what makes this story so profound. It's not that the light of God's glory turns the shepherds into royalty. In fact, not much changes at all for the shepherds in terms of their life circumstances. At the end of this story, they're still shepherds. They still smell. They're still at the bottom of the societal totem pole. But you see, the message of Christmas is not about God coming into the world and fixing all of our problems. The message of Christmas is not about God showing up and giving us the husband or wife we've been waiting for. It's not about God giving us the job we've been waiting for. It's not about God healing a loved one, though he can do all of those things. The message of Christmas, more than anything, is about God giving us himself. It's about God coming to be with us in the frustration of our singleness. It's about God coming to be with us in the frustration of our unemployment, in our grief, in our doubt. It's about God coming into the darkness and giving our darkness a purpose. These shepherds who once had very little, little to live for are the ones who get to see Jesus for who he really is. And the ones God hand selects now to take that announcement to others, to be a light 
in the darkness. So Christmas is not just about the light of the world coming to dwell with his people. It's about the light of the world living in us so that you and I can now be a light everywhere we go. So that you and I can embody Christ's love in our homes, in our workplaces, and our friendships. You know, while I would never wish this upon anyone, do you know who the best people are who, who can walk with you when you're grieving the loss of a loved one? It's people who've lost loved ones. You know who the best people are to have in your life when you're walking through a miscarriage? It's people who've had a miscarriage, who understand the pain, who know what that feels like, that anger and sorrow and, and, and frustration God takes the things that are often the most painful in our lives and he repurposes them in such a way that we can bring his light into every space we inhabit. This is why Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This week, um, I was listening to this pastor out in London, Mark Nelson, and he was telling this story about this first century Celtic Christian um, group. And they lived together in this small community, and, and they did a lot of different practices. And one of the things they practiced together in community every single day was they would gather together right as the sun was setting. And as the darkness was coming upon them, and as, as they were seeing the darkness literally descend, they would all gather together, and in one voice they would say, we beg to differ. Before they lit that first gas lamp, they would stand together, look squarely at the darkness, and say, we beg to differ. This is what Advent is about. We look squarely at the darkness and we say, I beg to differ. John 1, our word of assurance today said, and Jesus was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, this Advent season, will you, like the shepherds, heed the invitation to go and see this thing that has happened? Will you open your life to the light of Christ. Now I'm just going to um, close today with this quote that I saw this week. It's by an author and teacher whose first book was actually a new translation of the book that, uh, of the poem "The Dark Night of the Soul" by Saint John of the Cross. And for those of you who ever heard that phrase, "The Dark Night of the Soul," it's used to describe a period in a person's life marked by extreme confusion and chaos and helplessness and a sense of withdrawal from God's presence. A lot of people use that phrase to describe a crisis of faith. And she publishes this book, and on the day this book is published, her 14-year-old daughter is killed in a car accident. And what this author learns very quickly is that you could write an entire book about the dark night of the soul and not have a clue how to navigate the dark night of the soul when it happens to you. But some 15 years later, she writes another book. And in the book, there's this quote, and it just wrecked me this week. And she writes this. 
It's that keeping the heart open, even in hell, makes space for the beloved. It is in the darkest nights of our souls when all we know is that we know nothing that the presence of the sacred may quietly well up, mingling with our pain and connecting us to a love that will never die. This is a quote that sums up the Advent season. So would you today let the light of Christ come into the darkness? Let's pray. I want to give us a moment just to ask ourselves this question. What are the areas in your life that feel dark? What are the areas in your life where you're waiting for God to reveal himself to you, for God to show up in your life? And in this moment, would we reflect on God who is Emmanuel, God with us in the darkness, God who is working in the darkness, who gives our darkness a purpose. Just take a moment to sit on that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God whose story always begins in the dark. We thank you that you are a God who is always working in the dark. And we pray that we would remember that in this Advent season, especially those of us who find ourselves in a dark season, especially those of us who find ourselves overwhelmed by the darkness we see on the news, the darkness of the things that are happening in our world that we would know that darkness does not have the final word. It is never the conclusion. It is simply the introduction for what you desire to do in our lives and in the world. And we pray that in this Christmas season, in this Advent season, you would, have, you would help us to place our hope in you, knowing that you are bringing light into the darkness, that this is who you are, and this is what you have always done. We continue to entrust our lives into your sovereign, loving hands. I pray especially for my brothers and sisters in this room who are hurting today. May they know that you are with them. May they experience your peace and your comfort and your arms embracing them. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.